And so we come again now to our Unravel series this morning. And in our Through the Bible study, we come today to the book of 1 Samuel. And so I want to take a moment and set the scene for us so that we can have in our minds clearly where we are in history as we look at this book, how all of this fits into what we've been studying in the past and try to make sense of it that way. And so it's important for us to know, I think, that the book of 1 Samuel takes place right after the end of, or right at the end of the book of Judges. So in your Bible, the order of your books is Judges, and then Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. But you'll remember when we studied through those books that uh, I pointed out that the, the events of Ruth, as the very first verse of Ruth tells us, the events of Ruth actually take place during the book of Judges. So you can actually place the little book of Ruth inside the book of Judges. And as far as the timeline goes, the events we're getting ready to look at here in 1 Samuel can actually be merged into the end of the book of Judges. Now that's important because to properly set the scene for the events of 1 Samuel... We need to think back and recall what was taking place in that very dark, dreadful book of Judges. I showed you how the entire book of Judges can be summed up in that cycle that we looked at. That repeating cycle of how God's people rebel against Him. And God punishes them by turning them over to their enemies. Then the people cry out to God for help. God has mercy on them. He sends them a deliverer called a judge to rescue them. They once again enjoy a time of peace. And what happens? They get comfortable and they rebel again. And the cycle happens over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. And as I pointed out briefly back then to try and set us up for today, I pointed out that the book of Judges ends with this sad verse in Judges 21, verse 25. And it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So as we step now into the book of 1 Samuel this morning, we're going to begin seeing over the next few weeks the outcome, the results of what happens when God's people, like you and me, when God's people live according to their own rules rather than living according to the Word of God. Now jump ahead for just a second here. We, we get a glimpse of the tone of this in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, when it says, In those days the Word of the Lord was rare, there were not many visions. And that gives us just a, a peek behind the curtain of this time in history. So as we read these opening verses now, let's remember that this is taking place during one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. We're stepping into a time when there was a, a crisis in the land. The nation had turned away from God. There was a crisis in the church, just to put it in modern day terms. We'll see in the next few weeks that the priests in the tabernacle were corrupt. 
And there was also a crisis in this family that the book of 1 Samuel opens with. And as always, there are important parallels we can draw from all of this to apply to our own lives. Because when we see troubling, disturbing, unsettling, dark things taking place in our country as a whole, not that we could identify with that, when we see troubling things taking place in our churches as a whole, we see troubling things taking place in our families or our family, we can learn from a section of Scripture like this how God, despite the circumstances, how God is still working and moving and what it is that He wants to do in each of those areas. So we begin with 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now there was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim. Anybody been there recently? Of the mountains of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Lineage was hugely important to these people. Now isn't this an exciting kickoff to this book? Aren't you glad you got up and came to hear that opening verse today? Starts with a bang, doesn't it? Verse 2, And he, that's Elkanah, had two wives. Uh-oh. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now let me pause right here very quickly and say, some people who are not students of the Bible, who take it casually, or who look for opportunities to critique it and criticize it, some people wrongly conclude that because cases of polygamy are mentioned in the Bible, that God approves of it. Nothing could be further from the truth. That would be like you writing a paper on the statistics of people running red lights in Greenville and someone reading that concluding that you approve of people running red lights. The fact is, God's design from the beginning has always been one man and one woman for life. The problem is, we live in a world that has been twisted and tainted and broken and distorted by sin. And so in those days that we're reading about here in 1 Samuel, people, even God's people, would try to justify this by saying, well, my wife can't bear me any children, so I'll just marry a second wife who can have children because carrying on their family line was one of the most important things to them. But God never ordained this. And every time a case of polygamy is mentioned in the Bible, if you follow it through to its end, you will find that it always led to conflict and heartache. And here in 1 Samuel, Elkanah's first wife, Hannah, couldn't have children, so he married a second wife, and we'll soon discover that although that gave him what he wanted, it also gave him a lot of problems that he never wanted. I don't know what man in the world would want two wives. And frankly, I don't know what woman in the world would want two husbands. We both tend to mess things up pretty badly, don't we? Verse 3. I want to just read this section of Scripture here so that we can get the, the larger picture of what's going on. Verse 3. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up from his city year by year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Shiloh is a very important place in those days. Uh, at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, 
were priests of the Lord. We're going to see more about those two thugs next week. Verse 4 and 5. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, that's Penina, also provoked Hannah severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. Sounds like a nice lady. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Verse 8, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Now, i got to tell you, verse 8 is uh, a sad commentary on the stupidity of us husbands. Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? And at this point, Hannah is clenching her fist. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Yikes. Sometimes, man, it's best just to shut up. Verse 9. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple. It's actually referring to the tabernacle. The temple had not been built yet, but it's an interchangeable term sometimes there. Sitting at the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she, Hannah, was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give to your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. Now that's a reference to the Nazarite vow. Someone who was dedicated to serve God all the days of his life and keep himself completely separate from the world. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, the priest, watched her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. So Eli, being the genius pastor that he was, thought she was drunk. Well, there's a bit of a leap. And Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord. I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So she went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So let me repeat quickly, this book opens at a time in history when the nation was corrupt, the place of worship was corrupt, as we'll see in coming weeks, and the voice of God was rarely heard anymore. And after stepping into a bleak scene like that, our hope would be that the very first verse 
would explode into action with God sending some larger-than-life superhero to swoop in and save the day. But instead, the book opens by introducing us to an unknown family from an unknown place and a broken-hearted woman who is unable to have children. How could God possibly revive a nation and bring them back to Himself from such insignificant circumstances like that? Because that is exactly what God is getting ready to do. I'll give you a sneak peek into the coming chapters. From this little family of nobodies, God is going to raise up one of the greatest prophets that Israel had ever known. And you see, here's the important lesson for us. Our tendency is to say, when our nation or our church or our family is in need, our tendency is to say, hey, let's call in that famous evangelist to bring revival. If anybody can do it, he can. We're so quick to forget. God doesn't need great names or great personalities to bring about a great work. This dark time in Israel's history, we'd expect God to, to, to shine the spotlight on some famous person from some important place with some prestigious position. But instead, God shines His spotlight on an unknown woman named Hannah who is weighed down by life's problems. And this should speak volumes to us. Because all of us are unknown, ordinary people who, at any given moment, are weighed down by life's problems. And so all of us are candidates for God to work through. This little woman, this godly woman, weighed down by brokenness and heartache. And the first problem we're told that Hannah was weighed down by was, number one, barrenness. Barrenness. Now, Hannah's particular barrenness was obviously that she couldn't have children, but barrenness in the Bible can be a picture of emptiness in any area of life. And I have no doubt that many of you are experiencing some kind of barrenness in your life right now. You may be wondering why you're here, wondering what your purpose in life is. You may be carrying an emptiness in your heart. You may be aching from someone who has wounded you. You may be wilting under the never-ending load of physical problems. Whatever it is, it has left you feeling completely barren of the life and the joy that you once knew. See, listen, God sometimes allows us to walk through times of barrenness where we completely lack the ability to fix the situation on our own. And He allows this not because He's being cruel, but because He's bringing about something in our life that simply cannot come about any other way. Hannah's barrenness wasn't a random event. 
The end of verse 5 told us clearly the Lord had closed her womb. God is the one who had led her to this place of barrenness. You say, why? Listen, sometimes God has to, how would you say it? He, he has to strip away every other desire and dependence from our lives in order to begin teaching us what total dependence on Him and Him alone really looks like. Let's not miss this. Just because God was the one orchestrating this doesn't mean that Hannah whistled a happy tune and merrily skipped her way through all the heartache of it all. No. Even when we know that God is in control, we still have to deal with the frailty and weakness of our own humanness. We can't escape it. Because we're frail and weak humans, those times of barrenness can lead us to the second stage, which is bitterness. Bitterness. And the struggle goes on day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. We can reach a point where we start to say, Lord, where are You? I'm trying to serve You here. I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to follow You. When are You ever going to take this pain away? And our barrenness can take us to a place of bitterness. We see this happening to Hannah. I'm so glad the Bible is honest with us about the frailties of other people. It shows us the real life pain and struggles and heartache that even people who followed God had to deal with. It doesn't mask over it. That gives me hope. Hannah was a faithful woman. Just read her prayer in chapter 2 sometime. She continued to worship God and follow Him and cry out to Him through all those years of barrenness. But we see how that ongoing pain eventually brought her to the point of bitterness. Verse 10 says, and she was in bitterness of soul. And I'm going to tell you that bitterness will try to creep into all of us in times when our hearts feel barren. But it's how we handle it that makes all the difference. It's how we handle it. There's an old saying that two people can go through the same trial. One will come out bitter and one will come out better. And if you and I are going to go the distance for God in this life, we need to decide right now and commit to letting our trials make us better instead of bitter. We've carried heartache and pain and struggles for a long time. Bitterness will try to take over our heart. And the key is, we need to be very careful where we channel our bitterness. Where did Hannah take her bitterness? Verse 10, she was in bitterness of soul and she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Hannah said, I'm not going to waste my energy and my time being mad at my husband. I'm not going to waste my energy and my time being mad at the other wife. 
I'm not going to waste my energy and my time being mad at Eli the priest for misjudging me. You know what she did? She took it to God. And I'll tell you, if you take your bitterness, you will not only compound your own problems, but you will destroy the lives of people around you. It's quiet in here today. Y'all here? You want me to go away another week? All right, I just don't know. If it gets quiet like this, I get nervous. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Something. Throw something at me or tell me to shut up or whatever. What did, what did Hannah do? What did she do? She came again and again before the Lord and poured out her heart to Him because she knew that God was the only one who could fix her. Her husband couldn't fix her. The other wife couldn't fix her. Even the priest couldn't fix her. And I beg you to learn from Hannah today. If you can learn from her battle of faith, it will help carry you through the barrenness and bitterness that will inevitably come your way. If you'll let barrenness and bitterness drive you to God, instead of allowing it to drive you away from God, God will use your life. I promise you. But there's a third step we have to come to. And as Hannah continued to pour out her heart to God, she came to that third step, and that is brokenness. Brokenness. Now listen, brokenness is something that you and I try to avoid at all costs. We don't want to be broken. We see it as a sign of weakness. Or we see it as a sign of failure rather than progress. But I want to tell you something. It is only when you and I have been broken that God can truly begin to use us. It's only when our will, our pride, our self-dependence, our anger, our hurt has been broken by God that He can then come and pick up those broken pieces and start shaping us into a vessel that He can use for His glory. It's interesting, especially here in America, we, we humans don't really have time for broken things. Something is broken, most people throw it out. But once in a rare while, you'll meet a person who actually pursues broken things. They seek them out. They'll, they'll pay good money for broken things. Why? Because they love taking those broken, discarded pieces and restoring them to beauty and usefulness once again. And that's a picture of God. Because God holds a very special place in His heart for broken things. The Bible is filled with this language. Here are two verses for you. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Listen to this one. This gives me chills every time I read this verse. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also, uh-oh, where else do you dwell, God? And also, 
with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Wow! The high and holy, mighty and awesome and powerful God not only dwells in the highest place, but He comes and He dwells with the broken and the contrite. You may be at a place of brokenness right now. Maybe you've convinced yourself that God could never use you again from where you are. Listen, you are at a place right now where God can use you now more than ever. Because you see, after barrenness, and after bitterness, and after the brokenness, God has one more step for you, and that is blessedness. Blessedness. And that's the next step He brought Hannah to. Verse 19 Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. I want to be very, very careful here and issue a strong reminder of what we just read. I want to point out that this didn't happen overnight. Hannah didn't pray some perfect little magic prayer and all of her problems were solved the next day. Don't forget the, the earlier verses we read said that Hannah's anguish went on year after year. Year after year. You ever been there? You long for the time when that anguish, that barrenness, that bitterness, that, that brokenness in your soul only lasted a week. You long for the time when it only lasted a few months. Now it's been year after year after year. I'm going to tell you something you will not hear from most TV preachers. If you're committed to following God, you are going to have some barren years where the more you live for God, the harder things seem to get. And I will never get my own TV show because of things like that. And I could care less. And you need to know in those times that God has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. He is, in fact, forging the kind of faith in you that is impossible to get by any other means except through trials. We don't have time to explore this today, but sometime on your own, read the opening verses of James chapter 1. I remember so clearly years ago, a time when Sandy and I were in a season of barrenness. I don't mean... Not having children, just barrenness of life and direction and meaning and hope. And it went on year after year. And we were exhausted. And I remember saying, God, this is really long enough. 
Come on. You've got to take this away. And I, I turned to James 1 and I began reading. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith develops patience. But let patience finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not, like, not lacking anything. You see, and there's the problem. We think we know how long we need to be in the furnace of affliction. And we don't. God knows. For us, a year is much too long. Two years, five years, forget it, I'm out. It's too long. God, take me out of the furnace. Surely you've finished your work. God often says, nope. Not just yet. Not just yet. I'm going to keep that furnace door closed a little bit longer. I'm going to keep you in the heat and the trials a little bit longer because I've still got some purging to do in your life. I don't like to hear it anymore than I like to preach it. But it's true. God's own infinite wisdom, He knows that trials, trials... Trials are the one thing that will drive us to Him if we truly want to live for Him. And in those times, don't you dare give up on God. Don't say, God, I've, I've prayed and I've prayed and you're not doing anything, so I'm out. Where are you going to go? Can you tell me that? What's plan B? Who are you going to run to? You need to do what Hannah did. Year after year, even as the pain continued, she just kept following God and worshiping Him and pouring out her soul to Him. And when the time was right, oh, don't miss that in verse 20. Not when Hannah wanted, but in the course of time. Galatians 4.4, 4, remember that? When the fullness of time had come. Wow. You know who knows how long that is? God alone. In the course of time, God took her from barrenness to bitterness to brokenness to blessedness. And the day finally came when she held in her arms evidence of the faithfulness of God. And I'm not going to get anywhere near as far into these opening chapters as I thought. So I'm just going to wrap this up with some thoughts here and we'll move on to chapter 2 or 3 next week instead of today. Here's, here's the truly amazing part. After all those years of waiting and longing for a child, when God finally did give her that child, she didn't clutch it and say, He belongs to me. 
He's mine. I changed my mind, God. I'm not going to carry out my vow that I made to you. I'm keeping him now that you finally blessed me with him. No. The remaining verses of chapter 1 and chapter 2 tell us that Hannah remembered the vow she had made to the Lord. And she did the most remarkable thing. After she had weaned the child, she took him to the tabernacle and she gave him to serve the Lord there all the days of his life. Wow! And this, more than anything to me, reveals the character and the true heart that Hannah had for God. She didn't ask God to bless her so that she could be blessed. She asked God to bless her so that she could take that blessing and turn around and use it to bless God. It's, it's staggering to me. And God did take that blessing that was given back to him, that little boy named Samuel, and He raised him up to be a man of bold faith and used him to literally change the course of Israel's history and as I said, I'd planned to talk some about that today, but we'll get into that next week. So what do we make of this? Well, from an unknown family in an unknown town, God took an unknown woman whose life was at such a low point of emptiness and sorrow and desperation that she couldn't even eat. But she had surrendered herself to God and she remained faithful to Him despite her circumstances. And God said, just watch what great things I'm going to do through her. I wonder, would you have to say, if you were honest, Phil, my life has been at a place of barrenness, bitterness and brokenness for so long that I don't know anymore. I'm not convinced that God could ever take me from where I am to a place of blessedness and usefulness again. Listen to me. God knows who you are. He knows where you are. He knows what you're going through. And if you will just keep running to Him, He will be faithful to you. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want to see